or 21? Jeremiah 21. Now, if you look at Jeremiah 21 and what we're kind of talking about here, there's there's not a lot of deep stuff tonight. It was one of these things when I was typing up the sheet, I thought there's really not a whole lot to say. And I almost thought, well, we just won't do a sheet. And I know some of you guys like the sheets there for notes and stuff. And really the first three points, we've talked about these points all the time. When we went through our study in Revelation, this was a constant point in the book of Revelation. Is there sin? Sin has to be judged. But in the middle of judgment, there's grace. Now in the book of Revelation, there were angels flying above. There were the two witnesses. There were the 144,000. Here in the book of Jeremiah, it's the same thing. There's sin. Sin has to be judged. But there's grace. Same thing happens today. In the world we live in, there's sin. That sin will have to be judged, but in the middle of judgment, there's always grace. The problem is a lot of people stop at sin and say, that's all God is. He likes to point out sin. Or they stop after judgment and say, what a mean, nasty God he wants to judge. Boy, get to grace. When you get to grace, you see the love of Jesus that he died for us sinners. So let's talk about these three simple points and it's the last one that we're going to spend the most time on here. First thing, Jeremiah 21, 14. Let's talk about the sin they were doing. Verse 14 of Jeremiah 21. I will punish you according to the fruit of your doing, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. Once again, if that's the only verse you read, I wouldn't like God either. But that's just one verse. God's saying sin has to be dealt with. Now, we've mentioned this numerous times out here, so bear with me. God has allowed the sin to go untapped, unjudged, I should say, for 400 plus years. He is warning the nation of Israel here through Jeremiah's ministry for decades. He is telling them again and again and again that there is a sin that has to be dealt with and deal with it. Most of the time in the Bible, in fact, I can't think of an instance where this is not true, God just doesn't immediately do something. There's something where he's given warnings. There's something where he's given opportunity for repentance. So if we just look at these verses and say once again how mean God is, we're ignoring the fact that for decades, if not centuries, he was trying to warn them that the path they were on was going to lead to problems. The sin would lead to judgment. Well, what's the judgment? Verse 10. For I have set my face against the city for adversity, and not for good, says Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. That's the judgment. Now, they already know what's going on here. In 722 B.C., Assyria took out the northern tribes. And now in 586 B.C., Babylon's going to come down. So, once again, if the warning to you is, if you do A, B, or C, X, Y, or Z will follow, I'm giving you fair warning. If you do these sins, judgment's going to come. And in fact, the judgment that's going to come is this. Now, to me, that's love. That's me giving you warning. That's me giving you an opportunity to change the way you should handle things and the way you should do it. That's the way I look at it. Now, the problem is they didn't look at it for this way. Jump back to the first few verses of Jeremiah 21. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to Pashur, the son of Malachi, and Zephaniah, the son of Masai, the priest. Those are just basically names saying the king sent Jeremiah to the priests to say, what does the Lord say? Verse 2. Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you fight against the king of Babylon and Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of the city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, or even in anger and fury and great wrath. That is not the message they were expecting to hear. The king sends his two priests to Jeremiah, basically saying, give us some good news here. Jeremiah's answer is, God says, not only will I not hold back Babylon, I'm actually going to fight on their side. That is actually love. I know it doesn't look that way, but it is. God says, Israel, I love you enough to discipline you. Now, I know that doesn't sound fair or right, but anybody out here that's had children before, you love them enough to discipline them. God loves Israel enough to warn them and to discipline them and to say, this is what I'm going to do. So basically, Jeremiah tells some good news. The good news is God's actually going to fight on Babylon's side. Now, what's the grace option? Jump down to verse 8. Now you shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out and defects the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be as a prize to him. Now, You may analyze that and say, well, that's really not a choice. It is. Basically, very simply put, you can stay in Jerusalem and die, or you can give yourself up to the Babylonians, be taken as prisoner, and live. That is a choice. Now, we may say, well, what a horrible thing. Well, that would be a horrible thing to be taken as a prisoner of the Babylonians. But we also know what was going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, it got so horrible. That's what the book of Lamentations is about. That parents were eating their children. Parents were eating their placentas at their birth. I mean, it was just horrible. Absolutely horrible. So what God is actually giving them is an opportunity to live. And some of these people that went over to Babylon, see, we forget that later on, guess what happens? They get sent back. Their descendants get sent back, I should say, through the ministry of Nehemiah, etc. And they get to rebuild the temple. They get to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So basically what God is saying is, yes, judgment is coming. You're not getting out of that. But if you give yourself and go to the Babylonians as prisoners, you will take that punishment. But yet your descendants will have an opportunity to minister and get a chance to come back and rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. That is life. So God is saying in verse 8, I accept before you the way of life and the way of death. Stay, die, go, live. Now, that's the black and white of Christianity. You're a sinner. You've sinned. I've sinned. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've lusted. We've cussed. We're sinners. Judgment is coming. There's a heaven. There's a hell. Because of my sin, I am not good enough. I'm not righteous enough to walk into heaven. So therefore, I go to hell. But there's grace God says, I choose, I set before you life and death. Life is accepting Christ. Death is rejecting Christ. Same thing still applies today, thousands of years later. And our ministry and our purpose as Christians is to proclaim that truth. Jeremiah, easy in Jeremiah 21, could have given them a message they wanted to hear. He spoke the truth. And that's going to get to our last part here, the consequences to that truth. But now, before we get to the last point we're going to make, because we're going to spend some time on this, does anybody have any quick questions, comments on Jeremiah 21 itself? Yeah, Ryan. Uh, you mentioned there, King Zedekiah, he was the last king of uh, Jerusalem. Or mm-hmm. Yeah. 
this is getting there towards the end, and that's a good point there. And if you want to get a chance to read about that some more, you can. That's at the end of Second Chronicles 36, the end of Zedekiah reigning in Judah, is we're getting here towards the end. And you've got to remember a little bit with the book of Jeremiah, not necessarily everything is in chronological order, but by having that reference to Zedekiah, like Ryan is saying, we're getting towards the end. Babylon is starting to breathe down their necks. They have to make a choice. Yeah. It did. And that siege that was lasting, it's quite possible at this time that they saw the Babylonians' armies coming and preparing and basically what's going to happen here. So now's a choice. Do you go give yourself up or stay in? So we're definitely near the end here of Jerusalem. Anybody else? Yeah. Well, God was wanting to discipline Israel because of this. What was happening is Israel for hundreds of years has allowed idolatry to get in. They were allowing themselves to have a false worship of who God was. And for hundreds of years, they were not honoring God with the Sabbath. They weren't honoring God with their resources and with their lives. So what happened is, as a parent here, God allowed this to go for hundreds of years. And finally, God said, listen, the rule is you have to obey me. And if you don't obey me, judgment is coming. That's the deal that Israel made with God back during the covenant, back during the law. And when we were back in Deuteronomy, we were studying this. The rule was Israel promises to serve God. God promises to bless Israel. That works out great. Well, when Israel chose to not serve God, discipline followed. And so what's happening here is for hundreds of years, and through the ministry of Jeremiah the prophet, God was trying to warn Israel, saying, listen, you're being disobedient to me. You're not honoring me. You're not listening to me. You're allowing sin to come into this nation, and that sin's going to overtake you. So therefore, I need to discipline you to get your attention, get rid of that unrighteousness, and then say we can start afresh. I mean, it's the same thing I think about with my boys on a much lower scale, as I've shared with you before. We do our prayers, we do our devotions, we put the boys in bed, two are on the top bunk, two are on the bottom bunk. And the last thing as I say as I close the door and I shut the lights off is no talking and keep your head on your pillow. And I tell them that. Every night I warn them of that. And usually the first time I hear them get up or say something, I go in and I say, head on the pillow, quit talking. There's an obedience that's expected here. And if you disobey, there's a punishment that comes. And I also tell them, listen, it's not that I want you necessarily to train you to keep your head on your pillow or be quiet, but I need to trust that you're going to obey me in the little things so that way when we're outside and I say don't run towards the road, you're going to obey me in the big things. It's the same thing here spiritually with Israel. God needed them to obey in the little things to make sure they were all going to obey in the big things. As we mentioned with the whole Sabbath a couple weeks ago, what's the big deal, Lord? We didn't hit some Sabbaths. We worked. Well, since you didn't obey in the little things, you're not going to obey in the big things. So just like I go into the room a couple times, a couple times I say, boys, be quiet. Boys, I'm reminding you. Eventually, discipline may have to come because they don't listen. It's the same thing here with Israel. God warned them. God loves them. God did not want to discipline them. But since they chose not to listen, discipline has to come to teach them obedience to God. And he's been warning them for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Yeah, Tina. Thanks, Tina. Yeah, this is it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 
This, this is the end. You know, if we went to the full ideas of judgment, you'd have to go all the way back to Samuel, to what he said, to what Moses said, the book of Judges, Isaiah. I mean, we could go all the way down the line. This is God after hundreds of years saying, listen, you're my children, and I love you, and you're acting up, and now I need to discipline you to get your attention. It is, it is grace. It is grace, and that's one of the things is just because God is slow in punishing, it doesn't mean he's ignoring, it doesn't mean he's not paying attention. It's one of the most loving things he can do. He wants us on our own free will to come to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. He wants us to come and accept that grace. And I think about this, if you will, go to 1 Samuel chapter 8, please. Take a quick detour here, because this passage came to mind as David was talking there. 1 Samuel 8, please. We were talking about, as Tina mentioned, too, that this had been going on for hundreds of years. Moses, Judges, Samuel, Isaiah. I mean, we could go on and on. And there's all these little times where Israel just kept rejecting God. And here's one that brought to my attention. 1 Samuel chapter 8. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the nation of Israel comes to Samuel and says, We want a king. But there's a great verse right in the middle of this that we need to talk about. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. But I should not reign over them. See, that's just one little thing. Why did Israel need a king? God is their king. Well, this is just those steps of disobedience that lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that verse is just so key. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. See, they rejected God. They rejected God's leadership. They rejected God's rules. Look, according to all the works, look at verse 8. According to all the works which they had done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, which which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. God says, listen, this has been going on for hundreds of years, and Samuel's going to go on for hundred years after this. That's God. That's grace. That is a complete picture of grace. Just like when you read those stories in, in the book of Joshua, where God goes and takes out those nations. Yeah, but we never mentioned that for hundreds of years, those nations could have repented and they chose not to. That they were given an opportunity to, to give themselves over to the Lord, and they chose not to. The longer the Lord waited, the more love He's actually showing now, need to do this because we're running out of time here real quick. Jump back to Jeremiah. Consequences to what Jeremiah said. Jump ahead to Jeremiah 38. Obviously, we'll get to this, but it's going to take a while since that's 17 chapters away. Jeremiah 38. Now, don't get lost in all these names. These names just set the scene of whoever is talking here. Jeremiah 38, verse 1. Now, Shephethah, the son of Matan, Gadiah, the son of Pashur, Jokal, the son of Shimeah, and Pashur, the sons of Machai, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to all the people, saying, 
Thus says the Lord, he who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes over the Chaldean shall live. His life shall be as a prize to him. He shall live. Thus says the Lord, the city shall surely be given in the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which he shall take it. That's what we just read in Jeremiah 21. Look at verse 4. Therefore the princess said to the king, Please let this man be put to death, for thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city. Basically, this is treason. And so what happens is they take Jeremiah and they throw him in to the dungeon. Verse 6. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchi, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk in the mire. For doing what? For speaking the truth. Now, we throw the word persecution around a lot in the United States. There's different levels of persecution. As we talk about, and we never want to take this for granted, we are meeting here tonight freely and openly. And amen to that. But, other places in the world, they don't have that opportunity to do that. Generally speaking, you can go into work tomorrow and you can witness to people. You can witness to your teachers, you can witness to your classmates, you can witness to your co-workers. They're not going to take you and they're not going to throw you in the dungeon in verse 6 and put you in the mire. They're not. Now, in other places in the world, they will. I just read an article about some Christian men over in Iran just for, for just trying to witness to the Muslims. Now, we're very thankful for what we have. But why is it, as Christians, we have this freedom and this opportunity to do this, but yet... We're afraid to speak the truth. Turn, if you will, to John 15, please. This is what we're going to finish up with. John 15. The reason we don't like to speak the truth, and we mentioned this in just a couple Sundays ago in our study in Luke, one of the reasons we don't speak the truth is because we feel we don't have the knowledge or the wisdom to appropriately answer questions and to formulate the answers that are needed. And we kind of said, we got to let that go. You have time to study, prepare what the Word has to say, and you can also trust the Spirit to lead. The main reason we don't like to speak the truth is we're afraid of the consequences. You know what? We don't want to be thrown in the dungeon. We don't. We don't want people to dislike us. Hey, i got to live with these people. i got to work with these people. i got to go to school with these people. I don't want to burn bridges. And if I start talking about Jesus and God, it's going to get rough. It's going to get uncomfortable. And you're absolutely right. It is. Jesus made it abundantly clear that he came into this world to bring division. And that division is you either stand for him or you don't stand for him. As a Christian, you have to draw a line in the sand and you have to take a stand for truth. Just because certain things are considered acceptable in our culture does not make them biblically right. There are very, there's many things that happen in our culture that is morally acceptable, but yet is biblically wrong. And we have to realize as a Christian, when I take a stand for the truth like Jeremiah, I'm going to be persecuted for that. I'm going to be hated for that. I'm going to be mocked for that. And I don't mean to pick on anybody because I'm not thinking of anybody individually when I say this. But I'll get a phone call every now and then from somebody. And they'll, and they'll be like, they're having a rough time. And it's like, why? Well, I went to church or I went to work, I should say. And I told somebody about Jesus. And I said, well, how'd it go? And they said, it went awful. Well, what happened? No one wants to talk to me anymore. No one wants to sit with me at the lunchroom. People make fun of me. They mock me. It's awful. Now, I usually say, and I'm not very loving on it, so I apologize. I usually say, well, what did you expect? And I don't mean that to be mean. Did you really think they were going to hit their knees and say, thank you for bringing light into my darkness? Generally speaking, no. The world hates it when we speak the truth. And so what happens as Christians is we water down the truth to therefore be more acceptable to the world that we live in. There has to be moments in times like Jeremiah where you put your foot down and you say, I'm not going to budge on this. Now listen, I'm not saying go out and look for persecution. 
I'm saying that when you take a stand for the truth, it's inevitable that persecution will come. Don't put a bullseye on your back yourself to say, I want people to hate me for the Lord. No, they will just hate you for taking a stand. Why is that? John 15, verse 18, Jesus speaking. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Okay, the world wanted to crucify Christ, throw him in a tomb, and forget about him. Why is the world going to accept us? Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Have you not seen what the world celebrates? The world celebrates its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, if you have friends that are doing something that's biblically not right and the Lord leads you to take a stand, they're probably not going to like it. Moms and dads, if you have kids that are not walking in truth, and you have kids that could be making better choices in life, mom and dad, when you go to them and say, listen, I want you to make a better choice in that area, they're probably not going to like you. How many times do we want to keep a relationship with friends or relationship with kids or with grandkids or co-workers or siblings, and so therefore we just water down the truth? They're going to hate you for taking that stand. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they did not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now that they have no excuse for their sins. See, that's why people hate us. Verse 22, we point out sin. Now, we don't point out sin to be judgmental, but we speak truth. Now, with that same mindset, as I'm speaking truth up here and teaching, I'm convicted of things. God help me to be the better man, father, and husband I'm called to be. People don't like it because, verse 22, we point out sin. We don't say things like, well, you know what? Believe what you want to believe. Live the way you want to live. Act the way you want to act. Speak the way you want to speak. I can't say that. There are moral guidelines and standards that the Bible has said is right or wrong. And for me to not follow those moral standards and guidelines, I'm not being a pastor that I should be. I need to point those things out and say, I love you enough to tell you that action is going to cause harm in your life. Verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. Jesus is saying they can't ignore that I'm the Messiah. They've seen my miracles. Verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes... I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify in me, and he will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Verse 1, we stumble because we don't want to speak the truth. We, we don't. I, I don't want to lose that relationship. I don't want that awkwardness at home. I don't want that awkwardness with work. I want to keep that relationship with my daughter or son. I want to keep that relationship with my friend. I have to live with my spouse. I don't want to speak the truth. Wait a second. Do I care more about the righteousness and morality of Jesus in the Bible, or do I care more about some relationship on this earth? If I really love that person, I will tell them the truth. In love, please stress, in love, spirit-led. I've run into many Christians that have no problem speaking the truth. And it's not in love, and it sure ain't spirit-led. But it's truth. You need truth led by the Spirit done in love. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you. That when the time comes, you may remember 
that I told you of them. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I'm telling you now, when you speak the truth, you will be hated. Hated by supposed friends, family, co-workers, whatever. I tell you, as this world keeps going downhill, worse and worse and worse, we need men and women of God that are willing to stand up and say, I care enough to tell you that that action is going to hurt you spiritually and hurt your relationship with the Lord. Not out of judgment, but truth done in love led by the Spirit. Last thing we're going to say and we're done. Can you go to Galatians 6, please? Last verse. Galatians 6. Jeremiah was willing to take the consequences for the truth. We've covered this idea many times before. Sin followed by judgment, but always grace. That's a point we've covered once again in Revelation and Jeremiah. But as we study through Jeremiah, we have to look at the man. This man was willing to be thrown in the dungeon in the mire to speak the truth. Galatians 6, please. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone. And not in another. Look at that verse 1 one more time. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We have a biblical responsibility when we see somebody who claims to be a Christian, who is not walking in the truth, to say, I love you enough to say this area has to be addressed. Now, if we choose not to do that, we're actually in the wrong doesn't mean you go around pointing out everybody's sin. Once again, it is spirit-led, done in love, and a spirit of gentleness. But if the Lord has laid it on your heart that I need to go speak to that person, boy, I'm telling you right now, those are not fun conversations. And I have to have those conversations a lot. Not because I'm perfect, but because things get brought to our attention. It's like, you know what? Man, I love that person enough to care. And you call them up and you just say, you know what? Just hear me out. I love you. But i got to tell you this. That action is going to hurt you spiritually. You may hate me for that, but I feel like I need to tell you. Sometimes they hear it and they respond and there's great fruit. Sometimes they get angry and ticked and they don't want to ever talk to you again. And sometimes it's like the conversation never happened. Those are the ones that concern me the most. There's just this middle of the road. I know what I'm doing is wrong and I don't care. God help us to love. God help us to speak the truth. But God, help us also to look at ourselves say, Lord, is there anything in my life that needs to be dealt with as well? Jeremiah was willing to speak the truth, take the consequences for those truths, and end up in the dungeon. He was willing to take a stand for what was right. And that's an example we can learn from here, especially in a world that's falling apart around us. Now, it's a little after 8, so we don't got a whole lot of time. Has anybody got any final quick questions, comments here before we close up? All righty, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us this word, you've given us the spirit, and you've given us an opportunity and also an obligation to take a stand for the truth. Lord, we want to see people walking completely, fully in you and complete truth. And Lord, we want to see it in the spiritual mirror of our own life, that we're living the life. Help us to be a light and a witness, to do this spirit-led in love and in gentleness to want to see somebody go deeper in you. And Lord, if there's someone you've laid on our hearts right now that we may need to go have a conversation with, I pray that that's a God-ordained, a God conversation 
that you would go before it in all ways. Let your spirit lead, let your word be taught, and help us to show grace, love, and mercy in all we do. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Now, if you don't mind, we have that mystery dinner going on this Friday. I believe Pastor Rich is...